this episode, I'm joined by James Grant Rosenhead, member of Kibbutz Mishol, the largest urban kibbutz in Israel, with 150 people all living under one roof. James has agreed to talk to me about kibbutz, both the classic rural kibbutz and the growing phenomenon of urban kibbutzim. Hi, James. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Good, good, good. Now, most people have heard of the classic kibbutz with its rich history of 110 years of building intentional communities in Israel. The kibbutz actually predates the state, and the initial idea was actually to create a society based on a federation of these grassroots communities without the need for having the centralized bureaucratic instruments of a nation state. Tell me a little bit about the motivations of the early kibbutz builders. First of all, I'll set, set the frame that I think we're, we're talking about the very beginning of the 20th century. And we're talking about people coming primarily from Eastern Europe, then soon after that, you know, from all over the world, but primarily from Eastern Europe and Russia with very, very big dreams. Young people, really young people with really, really crazy dreams. I'd say that they were literally trying to reinvent themselves, reinvent the Jewish people, reinvent what it means to be a human being. They were trying to reinvent human society and community and they're trying to plan it what would become eventually Israel like to, to make the Jewish homeland I think is definitely a key and central part of it but I think that's really just a very narrow and um, slice of it but really these were people who were trying to build with their own hands a full-on utopia they were trying to create in themselves the new Jew but also beyond that they were trying to redefine what it means to be a human being and what it means to have a, a good society a good a Jewish society but also I think, you know, a role that they saw themselves playing in the long term was as building a model society for all of humanity. So on the one hand, it's, you know, definitely got a specific Jewish and nationalist Zionist aspect to it. But I think that there's also a very, very utopian socialist pioneering element to it, which was to, to save the world, to save themselves and to save the world. Okay. So go on, tell me, what did they do? What did it look like they actually create? What did they create? Say, right from the beginning, we're talking about people who wanted to change the way that they relate to each other as human beings by living in small intentional communities, which I think probably the most accurate uh, terminology is to call it intimate kfutsa. Before the name kibbutz came along, these these were folks that called themselves kfutsot, which really just means groups. But I think that word intimate adds a lot of, of uh, meaning to who they were and what they were trying to do because they weren't just pioneering groups. There were other, you know, there were there were pioneering groups at the time who were like the labor brigades, the gududavada, that were roaming the country, taking on national missions, where the focus was certainly for them on what they were doing outside of themselves, externally, for the people and for the nation. But I think when we talk about the intimate kfutsot, the name helps us to focus on what they were doing internally, talking about people who would share everything. And I'm not just talking about sharing their money and their clothes, but sharing their deepest feelings and thoughts, staying up to all hours of the night, having deep, intimate conversations about what it means to be a Jew and what it means to be a human being and what it means to create a new society. I didn't say it before, but maybe it's obvious, but we're talking about people who left behind the world that they came from in Eastern Europe. I guess, you know, the, cl the classic story is, you know, to imagine the sort of fiddler on the roof type shtetl that these people were leaving behind, but also, also, you know, major European cities. Either way, whether it's coming from a little Jewish shtetl out in the middle of rural Poland or, or coming from central Warsaw, either way, talking about people leaving everything they know behind, leaving their family, leaving their friends, getting on boats and arriving in what was, at the time, a very harsh environment physically 
going to, you know, swamplands full of malaria, for example, and settling as a small, small group, let's say 10, 15, 20 people. And again, we're talking about young people. We're talking about 16, 17, 18, 19 years old people, men and women together, and saying, okay, starting with this small group of people, let's build a society, let's build a nation, starting with our little microcosm of utopia here of how do we talk to each other? How do we listen to each other? How do we work together for the common good? How do we share our money? How do we celebrate Shabbat? and Jewish festivals? How do we do every... Let's, let's reinvent it all according to our socialist Zionist ideals and principles and visions of the future utopia that we want to build. And I, if I was to, to sort of fast forward, that those those first seeds, those first little intermukfutsot became, over a few decades, a very, very significant mass movement of communities that are now known as the, as the kibbutzim and the kibbutz movement, of s- several different uh, parallel movements, actually, that between them span some 270 communities. Between them hold a large degree of responsibility for the pioneering of a, of a nation and to a great extent really did succeed in reinventing judaism with a strong zionist identity and culture that was renewed and renewed the hebrew language and created the beginnings of what's you know what eventually became one of the strongest armies in the world at the beginning just by defending themselves and their little groups but forming the backbone of what's now the idf in looking after each other's health what's become, you know, a very significant part of the welfare state in Israel, of the National Health Service, the Kupat Cholim, and in terms of their mutual responsibility for each other, in terms of their resources physically, you know, creating the, the Hamash Beer cooperative store, creating the banking system, the the road system, the, you know, the infrastructures really of an entire nation, which, you know, on the one hand, because they didn't, didn't turn out to be the full-on uh, socialist Zionist utopia that they imagined and that they dreamt of, but it certainly was no mean feat. And I think they achieved far more than anyone at the time would have expected them to achieve. Okay, so what happened? I mean, you're talking about, you know, from the 1910s that the Ganya was established at the beginning of the, uh, the second decade of the 20th century. Uh, and you're talking about the 10s, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. We're talking about growth. We're talking about building infrastructure, development of the pre-state, and then the state itself went sort of in parallel with the development of the kibbutz. And you're saying that the kibbutz had a huge influence and impact on Israel not just in and of itself, but also externally in terms of in terms of what the army, the politics. Look, I think I think it's it's a, this is a whole subject which can't really be overestimated and is often very much underestimated in just what a significant role these uh, ultimately objectively small number of people, because of their passion and their commitment and their vision, achieved for 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 the entire Jewish people or for the for the state of Israel for the world in some ways in that. You know, there's some cliched, cliched sayings about what these people achieved. That if you turn off all the lights in Israel and you only turn on the lights in the kibbutzim, then you, broadly speaking, see the map of Israel from above if you're flying around in space, because they literally settled what would become the borders of the country. They put themselves really out there on the front lines, the frontiers of of what would become Israel. Not just that physical, geographical stuff that started with them draining those swamps way back in in the 1910s and 20s but but also 
like I said, you know, the development of, for example, I didn't mention before, the unions. You know, the workers' rights in Israel and the unions system began there in the kibbutz. And like I said before, the health system, the army, the, the proportion of members of kibbutzim that were the leaders of the Labour Party, which itself led the Knesset, led the government of Israel and led the country for many, many, many years. Again, it's hard to recognize today when there's so comparatively little presence of the kibbutz in mainstream Israeli life and in mainstream Israeli culture, yeah, either in Israel or abroad, when you read about Israel and Zionism today, whether it's in, you know, in the newspapers or on TV or in history books, I don't, I don't think that you get a sense of the proportion of the impact that the kibbutz had for many, many years like you say, from, let's say, 1909, 1910, right through to the end of the 1970s. It's really quite astonishing. And again, it was, I think, you know, it was an era, uh, two, three, four percent of the population of Israel that were actually living in these kibbutzim. They punched above their weight. They punched above their weight, in, and they still do in many in many. In many ways, if you look at the the GDP of Israel today, a huge disproportionate amount of Israel's GDP is still today based in the kibbutzim. The agriculture, the industry. Absolutely, absolutely. They're 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 still today, dis- despite, like I say, their lack of presence maybe in in pop culture and in the direction things are heading in Israel today. I'd say that there's still a level of momentum that they created in those early years, which still makes them objectively and statistically speaking a very very disproportionately significant leadership role in Israeli society until today. Okay, it sounds like a pretty perfect picture and I want to ask you uh, if you think in that period of the kibbutz building, or maybe even the glory years of the kibbutz, if from your perspective you can see mistakes that were made. Well, I think that we have to be uh, honest and self-reflective and see that that at a certain point things really did start to change very dramatically. I think the first place that's that's usually obviously talked about is the change in the economic system, what's called privatization of the kibbutzim, which in the 80s and 90s there was a big crisis in many kibbutzim and in the kibbutz movements as a whole. Some people say that the main factors behind that were that the economic system that they were based on was, was always flawed and it was always just a matter of time before capitalism won out and socialism was defeated. But I think that's a very, very oversimplistic way of looking at it. It's true to say that many kibbutzim, the vast majority of the 270 kibbutzim around Israel since the early 1980s have gone into a stage-by-stage process of privatization. And today there's only a small number relatively of kibbutzim who are firmly committed to cooperative or socialist community life, maybe some 20 to 30 kibbutzim. And beyond that, there's maybe 50 or 60 kibbutzim who haven't yet privatized, but aren't making any bold statements about the fact that they never will. Either way, whichever way you turn it, it's a minority of kibbutzim that have kept that utopian community, socialist, cooperative, whatever you want to call it, way of life internally. But I think that it's um, worth drawing our attention also, and maybe even more so, to the external factors not just their internal economic sharing and and how much they're sharing compared to the outside world. Because even in a privatized kibbutz, you know, there's a system of what you could call progressive taxation or uh, mutual responsibility between the members of the kibbutz, which still makes it compared to a normal town or village in the Western world of really quite a socialist place. It's just compared to its own past, it's much less equal and sharing than they used to be. But all of that, I think, somewhat misses one of the main points that they 
always started out with, which is to what extent they were still pioneering, to what extent they were still taking responsibility, not just for themselves, but for the for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel, for Israeli society, for the for the world. All those dreams that they started with right at the beginning were never just about making themselves a good, well-functioning, cooperative, socialist life internally. All of those things were, from the beginning, intended to be, like I said, the microcosm of building a good society for the whole world. Now, the first pioneers were very, very busy every single day being mobilized to do missions for the greater purpose of the Jewish people and of the nation. And the kibbutzim played those national roles for decades. But really, I would say that the downfall of the kibbutz comes before the privatization and the economic crisis of the 80s and the 90s. It comes when the kibbutz stops being at the front of Israeli society in terms of taking responsibility for the nation's needs. Now, I think that, you know, already by the time you start to get to the 60s and 70s, you start to see the kibbutz being more comfortable in some ways, not necessarily financially wealthy, but in terms of their priorities, they start to take care of their own needs more and more and take care of the external needs of the society around them gradually less and less. Now, again, this, this is all a relative thing. They're still a very, very cutting edge, socially responsible community compared to your average town or village in England or America or Australia or wherever or in Europe. But uh, compared to their own past and their own vision of the good society, by the time you get to the second generation and the third generation of people who are born into these societies, which I think is a really fundamental factor to bear in mind, also for the internal economic structures, but also for the extent to which they're on a mission to save the world and change the world externally, people that are born into a kibbutz and people that are born the generation after that, who are the grandchildren of the founders and the great-grandchildren of the founders, you know, socialist Zionist ideals and visions for a good new society and the new Jew and the new human being are not passed on genetically and they're not passed on in DNA and they're not even particularly strongly in the history of kibbutz taught clearly and expressed well to the children. It's sort of assumed as the generations of the kibbutzim developed that the kids, because they grew up in this society, would just imbibe all of the norms and the culture, again, economically, the internal structures, and also externally, the social pioneering spirit of taking responsibility for the nation. It's assumed that the kids would just absorb those ideals and become the new Jew and the new human being by living in it from birth. And it doesn't bear True. Objectively, you start to see there's a connection between the privatization of the kibbutz and the lack of social responsibility externally with the fact that the majority of the kibbutz is now, you know, the third generation and the fourth generation of people who happen to be born there, not people who, like in the founding generation, chose to dedicate their lives to these ideals. And again, you know, it's not one-to-one. -one. It's not like every single individual who's born in a kibbutz automatically rejects socialism and Zionism and being a pioneer for the nation. But on the whole, I think at this point we can say that, you know, people, when they're born as a child, as I was, often reject parents' ideology and their parents' culture and their parents' way of life. And the same is true of kids born on kibbutz. And so the expectation that by the, by the 70s, 80s, 90s, that kibbutz grandkids and great-grandkids of these founding socialist Zionists are going to somehow turn out to also be great idealistic pioneers of a future utopia falls flat on its face. Again, got to keep this all relative because still, even in the 80s and 90s, you're talking about communities that relative to a normal 
normal Western democratic capitalist countries, towns and villages, they're still both egalitarian internally and relatively socially responsible externally. But compared to their own past and their own visions, things really got lost and watered down along the way. Okay, so I understand what you're saying, that in terms of, for you, the fundamental shift occurred when the Kibbutzim stopped looking outwards and taking responsibility for the wider society and spent more time and energy looking out for their needs as a community, as families, as individuals, the process of privatization. And uh, I wanted to take that step back and ask you to to share a little bit about, about what that looked like. And when you use the term privatization, what does it actually mean in practice within a kibbutz community and between its members? What changed? Well, that's a big question because there's generally, I think, a lot of different elements that are wrapped up in that term, privatization. In many, many kibbutz communities, I'll start at the very, very basics, that the processes begin by a separation of the kibbutz from the community, from the members of the kibbutz, that in the in the classic early model of the kibbutz community, the meshek or the the financial farm and industry and agricultural branches of the kibbutz, where people worked, and the service branches of the kibbutz, like the laundry or the dining room, um, or the gardens or the childcare of the kibbutz were all wrapped up as one holistic socioeconomic unit where the members of the kibbutz and the kibbutz was one thing. What they did at work and how that related financially to the outside world and how they made their decisions internally and brought up their kids and ate their meals was part of one holistic system. And so I think that maybe the start of privatization in some ways can be said to be when in almost every kibbutz, I think, they separated the community from the business side of things. So you start to have separate legal corporation of the farm and the industry of the kibbutz even even if they're still together as one big corporation that includes all the different work branches on the one hand and on the other hand you have the community of the kibbutz the members who are like i guess you would say the shareholders and the owners of those kibbutz industries and and farms etc but they start to relate to them as two separate things start to divide what was formerly a very very holistic way of life that looked at everything as part of the whole and start to divide it up into, into home life and work life if you like which i think is a step towards privatization isn't that just about professionalizing and recognizing that a business needs to be run like a business and not by people that don't really know that aren't business savvy and therefore is that not part well, of the process there yes i think that's true but it's a, i think it's a, it can be a slippery slope because it depends where you go from there you know you could say if i continue the line of reasoning that you were just saying. You could say that, you know, the, the kibbutz community, when you separate the financial corporation of the farms and the industries, etc., from the community life, you could still say that, well, the community is still each member receiving an egalitarian recompense for their work. You can still say, you know, everyone's still getting the same amount of money and living on the same amount of money and it's still still fully cooperative and fully egalitarian. But I think that it paves the way for a different state of mind. For, for example, if we don't think of the work branches just as being a place that earns money for the community, okay, it's still, it's still cooperative in that you're earning money from work and that money's coming into the community as a whole and not to you as an individual or just to your family, but it's still relating to work in a slightly more alienated way uh, in that it's 
less likely that you're going to be able to relate to your work as your mission. It's less likely to be able to see those work branches as the day-to-day fulfillment and manifestation of your ideals hour by hour as you're laboring. What it opens up, for example, in practical terms, if I you know come down from that philosophical side, is is also a great shift towards hired labor. That you know, more at the beginning, the kibbutz members were were the people that were working the land and draining the swamps and milking the cows, etc., etc., themselves, and they were you know sweeping and washing the floors in the in the dining room and cooking the meals and clearing it up themselves and they were doing you know the service work internally and the hard physical labor externally and everything in between themselves as a community holistically and once you start to separate those ideas and those practical institutions and the organizational structure of the whole thing you start to be able to get a situation where more and more of the hard jobs are done by people that are not members of the kibbutz that you pay you hire them and you profit from from the wage labor and the gap between the the amount of money that you're paying them and and, and how much your community is profiting basically makes you into um you know a, a sort of bourgeois capitalist employer of the farm laborers for example uh, and you start to see more and more kibbutz members uh, working as managers and not necessarily as laborers now on the again you could still say well they're still all getting the same pay and they're still all making their decisions together and so it's still a cooperative society and that is again true but i think it's a slippery slope in terms of how people see themselves and each other because what happens to your state of mind when you become a class um, of managers. Um, you know how do the kibbutz's most profitable branches managers relate to those physical laborers, and how do they relate also indeed to the people that are doing the childcare and cooking the meals in the dining room on the kibbutz? You know, if they're the manager of a successful industry which is funding a large part of the kibbutz economy and looking after everyone, then you start to maybe have more of an ego. Your opinions maybe start to count for more in the kibbutz decision-making discussions and so again i would say it's not that's not the big bad privatization but it's first steps towards a different state of mind both towards the missions that you're doing in society and whether it's missions or whether it's labor and hired labor and wage labor that you can exploit to some extent uh, and also in terms of introducing different types of hierarchy into the kibbutz economy into the kibbutz social statuses there's another side of having more and more hired labor which is also more and more kibbutz members working off kibbutz and going off to be which also has its benefits and has its advantages but be professionals doing all sorts of jobs outside of the kibbutz so you start to see a separation between the community and the labor of the community which really is just the first first early steps towards privatization at a later stage what you start to see for example is cash registers in the dining room and people having to pay for their meals between the beginning stages and the and the cash register in the dining room where people are paying for their meals you start to see the introduction of phone bills and electricity bills to the kibbutz members where they're paying different amounts for the facilities of the kibbutz that they're using still they're they're arguably being paid the same amount and they're still an egalitarian community but you can see that those bills that they start to receive for the amount of miles they're driving in the kibbutz cars or the amount of electricity they're using in the kibbutz homes etc is a change in mindset towards counting what the kibbutz member is using whereas beforehand it was clear that people have different usage of these things and that's fine because we want to live according to you know those socialist principles of giving according to our ability at work and receiving according to our needs at home what we start to see is a is a, is a different approach where we're starting to say no we're going to have to pay differently 
for using different services, even if we're all receiving the same wage to begin with. Again, a slippery slope, as you keep going down that road, you end up with differential wages. Then some people would say it just crept in bit by bit by saying, okay, everyone's got the same wage, but if you're doing overtime and you're working on Shabbat, for example, on the Sabbath day, then you can have a little bit of extra money. Or if you're doing extra turns of Toronut, of the, of the rotor system, the kibbutzniks are responsible for some things as a, as a, on, a, on a rotor basis, then you can do extra Toronut, extra rotor, cleaning the dining room or whatever, and get a little bit of extra money on top of your equal wage. There's still basically an equal wage. And the breaking point, the, the, the point at which I think everyone would agree at the end of the day that it's privatized is when they say, at a certain point, and this is the, the big transition, no, you're not all going to get the same wages. We're going to value the jobs that you're doing differently. You know, value your labor according to market values outside of the kibbutz, at least to some extent. Yes, we'll have some kind of progressive taxation and we'll be mutually responsible for each other and we'll have a health system and a welfare system and an education system which we're all paying taxes into. But at the end of the day, the manager of the kibbutz factory is going to earn a lot more money than the person that's taking care of the kids in the kindergarten. Uh, and the person that's cleaning the floor in the dining room and making meals, well, uh, they'll earn less money than the person that's managing the dining room, etc., etc., etc. Now, where along that scale of that whole long, complicated story that I've expressed just now of, you know, starting with the separation between the work branches and the community life and ending in full-on differential wages for the members of the kibbutz, where exactly is the red line that you say, okay, that's the point where it's privatized, or that's the point where it's not equal anymore, or that's the point where it's not utopian cooperative life anymore. There is no one point, and everyone's got different places on that scale. For some people, it's the cash registers in the dining room, for example. Uh, so there's no one clear, true definition, I think. What we can say at this point is, I'm not sure, well, to me at least, I'll express my opinion, I'm not sure how important it is to be able to pinpoint at what point it becomes a new kibbutz, which is uh, what they, you know, a renewed kibbutz, which is what they started calling themselves in what I would suggest is maybe a little bit of spin. They start calling themselves the renewed kibbutz or the new, the new model of kibbutz. At the end of the day, what's important, I think, to take note of at this point in in the history of all these changes is that most kibbutzim have chosen some at some point since the 1980s and now the vast majority of kibbutzim have chosen to go down that road to a greater or to a lesser extent. Personally, I find that, that a great tragedy. I'm not going to contradict you because uh, I understand and, and I think I agree with your analysis, but I do want to pick up on one point that you came back to several times, which is the question of valuing different work and hence valuing different people. You talked a little bit about ego. It just makes me think about the relationship between men and women all the way back to the very beginning of kibbutz in terms of, you know, it was clear who was going to do the childcare, it was clear who was going to make the food, and it was clear who was going to the back-breaking work in the fields. And so even right from the very, very beginning, there was already this, this is what's valued, this is what's valued less, even though it's contributing to the survival of the community, it's sexism, and I'm wondering, how's that different? How's that significantly different from what you're talking about of valuing these different roles and how it affects the community as a whole? First of all, just want to make sure we get things in proportion. Yes, the kibbutz in the early days was already not perfect. If I gave the impression at the beginning that they dreamt of utopia and actually succeeded in arriving at utopia, then clearly that's not the case and that's not 
that's not what I was suggesting. And if it came out that way, then I'd, then I'd take it back. There was always challenges right from day one. There was always things that they did not succeed in. They were very, very, very aspirational. And I, I use the word utopia with great weight. The whole point of utopia is that you can't actually achieve it. And they really didn't. They were, they were flawed human beings. They weren't perfect. They weren't gods of any sort. Gender roles in Kibbutz life is, is a good place to, to see that they didn't live up to all of their ideals and their aspirations. But it's important to put it in pr- proportion and context. And re- relatively speaking, the early Zionist movement of these pioneers was phenomenally feminist compared to what was going on in all of the rest of the world, in the countries that they came from themselves, but also actually in the entire world. The role of women in the pioneering movements in those early years of the 20th century, uh, they had the vote. I mean, on the most basic level, they had a say. They had a vote in the big public decision-making forums, and they got a say in the small kibbutz community forum of the intimate kibbutzah, and that's more than was true of women at the time in America or Britain or anywhere in Europe, basically. So again, let's, let's, let's make sure that we understand that relatively for their time, they were cutting-edge feminists in this kibbutz movement that they pioneered. However, like you, like you point out correctly, they didn't fully manage to eliminate discrimination based on gender, and they didn't fully diminish discrimination of all different sorts. But you read the stories of the women pioneers in those early days, and it's clear that there was an expectation that was disappointed. Their hopes were dashed. Now, the fact that they even had these hopes that they could come away from the traditional Jewish life of the Eastern European shtetl, or of the normal sort of patriarchal society that they were coming from, middle-class background of a major city in Europe, plus the Jewish traditional stuff that's, that, that surrounded them in those orthodox backgrounds, and that they could throw off all of those chains of the patriarchy and immediately become fully equal in their pioneering roles in these small agricultural communities. You're right, they didn't achieve it, but they were, A, really seriously expecting and hoping to and planning to, which is, again, says something compared to what was going on pretty much anywhere else in the world at the time. And B, in, in more than one place, in more than one community of, the, of this sort, and more than one individual woman, it was an entire movement uh, across the board of these communities who were struggling for those things, who were struggling for a level of emancipation and of equality and of liberation from the patriarchy, which I don't think can be paralleled anywhere else. And in some places, they made really, really significant breakthroughs, and there's incredible heroines uh, amongst those pioneer women who created, again, what's arguably, even in Israeli society today, which is an incredibly machoistic and chauvinist society, there are still elements of of an extremely strong feminism, which arguably was pioneered by those first kibbutz women. Thank you. We're going to change gear. By the 1980s, there were already urban kibbutzim. Can you tell us what are they? How did they come about? Urban kibbutzim. When I first heard that terminology, I didn't understand it at all. It was a complete contradiction in terms for me because uh, I remember I'd always always understood kibbutz to be, at its basis, an agricultural society, a farm, a collective agricultural farm community. And so what, what does it mean, urban? And I think that to understand the terminology, we need to go back again not just to the internal cooperative economics and decision-making and culture of the kibbutz, and not just to their ideals and values of, of socialist Zionism and of, of secular Zionist kibbutz Judaism, cultural Judaism, but you need to also look at the linchpin question of what they were doing for society, what they were doing outside of themselves. And I think that the 
easiest way to start understanding what an urban kibbutz is is that in the 1980s, the late 1970s, and I should say that there were examples, multiple examples earlier on of things that you could say were urban kibbutzim or temporary urban kibbutzim or attempts at urban kibbutzim, such as the FL Seminar Center as it is today, which was at one time an urban kibbutz just outside of Tel Aviv. And you could look at, for example, Garin Sha'al in Carmiel in the 1970s as an attempt at, at building an urban kibbutz which lasted a few years. In the 1980s, you start to see the establishment of urban kibbutzim which lasts till today. That's my starting point, is to look at the ones which weren't just around for a few years, but that started back then and are still going now. Um, a sustainable, long-term model of urban kibbutz community life. What I started saying before is what I think you need to look at is why they did what they did. And I think for many of them, it was about leaving behind what had become, in their minds, the pioneers of these urban kibbutzim, isolationism of the kibbutzim, that they started to see countryside, farming, industrial communities that many of them were born on, the first pioneers of these urban kibbutzim, many of them grew up themselves on normal agricultural kibbutzim, and they sort of, I guess, their rebellion or their tweak and upgrade, just depending on how radical you want to see what they did, was to say, we need to go to the front lines of Israeli society today. We're going to go to the development towns and to the socioeconomically challenged neighborhoods of Israeli society, because that's, in the 1980s, and beyond the front lines of Zionism, the front lines of the problems of Israel and of an Israeli society today. And in the same way as back in the day, a hundred years ago, the challenges were the physical challenges of agriculture and developing the infrastructure of the country and draining the swamps. So the urban kibbutzim in the 1980s began with what's become a cliche, I guess, of saying there are still swamps to drain, but they're not the physical swamps. They're the swamps of Israeli society. And we're going to go to the front lines of the swamps of Israeli society as urban kibbutzim, and we're going to get back to what's been lost along the way, which is this pioneering spirit, that in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, the kibbutzim had a pioneering spirit of what they were doing, not for themselves internally, but for the nation. And the urban kibbutzim said, we're going to get out of the countryside, we're going to take down the fence around us, and we're going to go into the front lines of Israeli society, and we're going to become social pioneers. And so you see a very high proportion of the members of Kibbutz Tammuz in Bet Shemesh or Kibbutz Migvan in Sterot or Kibbutz Beit Yisrael in Gilo in Jerusalem, who are these first generation urban kibbutzim of the 1980s, working as teachers and social workers and setting up uh, non-profit, non-governmental organizations, etc. That's, I guess, how it began, the, the, what I would call the first generation or Mark I of the urban kibbutz. And there are other intentional communities that have cropped up over the last 20 years that wouldn't necessarily call themselves socialists or even kibbutzim. Who are they? Right. This is something that not many people know about still today. I mean, not many people know about the urban kibbutzim. Even less people, I think, know to the extent to which Israel has become a hotbed of fertile growth of intentional mission-driven communities. Now, mission-driven, I know, is a bit of an awkward terminology, but that's sort of the terminology that they seem to have settled on internally agreed between themselves. So that's the that's the term I'm going to use for communities which, whilst they're not all necessarily cooperative and socialist in, in terms of their uh, economic structures, from the late 1960s onwards, at the same time as you start to see the first experiments of these urban kibbutzim, like I said, of Garin Sha'al and Carmiel, at about the same time, you start to see, for example, Garinim Toranim, the uh, modern Orthodox 
or national religious groups of pioneers from you know the other end of the political and religious spectrum to many of, of the socialist left-wing secular kibbutzim communities but still you're talking about groups of people who similarly to the urban kibbutzim decide to start going to the socio-economic and geographic peripheries within Israeli society to the development towns and to the socio-economically deprived neighborhoods of the major cities and and seeing themselves as pioneers of social issues. So again, a very, very high proportion of people working in education and social work and setting up NGOs. And so whilst internally and politically and ideologically they're very different to the urban kibbutzim, these Garanim Toranim, from an external perspective, are very, very similar. Young, idealistic families coming from strong backgrounds, both in terms of uh, education and socioeconomic status, etc., deliberately going to be pioneers on the social frontiers of Israeli society and using the same sort of tools of community building and neighborhood re rejuvenation and regeneration and renewal through community work, social work, educational projects, formal education, informal education, etc. There was a few urban kibbutzim, like I said, that started up in the 1980s and a, and a bunch of Garanim Toranim that started up and then really when you get to the 1990s, these things start to take off. If I was to, to zoom to today, for example, there's now what we call Makom, which is the name of the National Council of Mission-Driven Communities in Israel, where you've got 14 movements, 14 different networks of these mission-driven communities that span the religious and political spectrum, but also come from all different demographic and ethnic backgrounds. You've got Druze intentional mission-driven communities and Ethiopian mission-driven communities and Mountain Jews uh, intentional mission-driven communities. And to cut a long story short, you've got pretty much all walks of life in Israel, like there was, I guess, a hundred years ago in the early years of, of, uh, of the pioneering of this country, turned their attention towards social pioneering through physical settlement and community building and grassroots small community action. Even before this happened, it's worth noting that compared to all the other countries in the world, Israel has the highest per capita amount of intentional communities anywhere in the world, with I think Germany being number two. I'm sure that those stats were from the old agricultural kibbutz movement and the moshavim and the community settlements of all different sorts that there already were. I think today, if someone was to do that survey again and take into account what's now, I guess, more than 200 new mission-driven intentional communities that have sprung up over the past 20, 30 years all over Israel in all walks of life, then I'm sure that Israel is soaring away in their lead as the world capital of intentional communities. Thank you. And, and I want to add to this picture the pioneering youth movements. Okay. Who, are, who, who are they, both in Israel and abroad? And how did they respond to this changing reality? So I mentioned before, I sort of skipped over it, I mentioned that in the 1980s there was a handful of urban kibbutzim, and in the 90s it starts to take off and become this mass movement of all different streams and all different networks and all different walks of life, building these mission-driven communities all over Israel. Well, I think, I think one of the key explanations as to how it went and took off in that way um, and how it's growing rapidly and how the rate of growth actually is increasing all the time is about the youth movements. Maybe before I answer your question, I'll 
you know, offer a bit of background that maybe isn't clear to everyone that the youth movements were also arguably the key to success of the original kibbutz movement 100 years ago, where in the second Aliyah, you know, we're talking about a handful of people coming and second building... Wa- second wave of immigration. Second wave of immigration to Israel at the, in the early 20th century, you know, marks the beginning of the creation of these handful of small socialist groups, the Intimuk Futsot, by a handful, ultimately, of of young pioneers how did it become a mass movement how did it become 270 kibbutzim all over israel including religious kibbutzim and three or four different kibbutz movements depending on how you want to look at it how high a resolution largely because there were youth movements these youth clubs youth organizations is the terminology that most people know in the mainstream english-speaking world but youth movements is a bit of a different phenomenon where these are not just youth clubs and youth organizations where kids go and hang out to do something social or, or even socially constructive but they're actually part of an ideological organization of an, of an ideological movement as youth which aims to try and change the world no less and so these socialist zionist youth movements of the 20th century produced graduate groups who went and established kibbutz after kibbutz after kibbutz and joined in the early years kibbutz after kibbutz after kibbutz and it happened year after year with groups coming literally from all over the world and then youth movements started up in Israel itself and so you get decade after decade of youth group graduates youth movement graduates to to really be precise youth movement graduates who finish their time as kids in the youth movement and decide that these ideals that they've learnt as kids in the youth movement are actually not just games that they want to play in their youth movement, they're actually real ideals for real life, for building themselves communities and changing the world by seeing each of those communities as a microcosm that together as a network of little idealistic communities can form the backbone of a society. Now that's what happened in the 20th century throughout Israel and created the vast majority of all the kibbutzim that there are, um, these groups of idealistic youth movement graduates fulfilling their ideology by going and building kibbutzim. And that's also what happened again in the 1990s, that youth groups, youth movements, to be precise, in Israel, starting with Hanoah Oved Vahalomed, saw what was happening in the kibbutz and in Israeli society, saw the privatization internally on the one hand and saw the ever-decreasing social responsibility of the kibbutz for the challenges of the changing Israeli society on the other hand, and they decided to start redirecting their youth movement and their youth movement programs and ultimately their youth movement graduates towards being a mass movement of pioneers on the socio-economic and geographic peripheries of Israel's frontiers. And so through the 1990s, Hanoah Oved Volomed starts producing its own graduate movement of these small idealistic educators kibbutzim is that is what they would call themselves most people externally would maybe say the common factor is as urban kibbutzim but internally i think to do them justice we need to recognize that for them the fact that they're urban is a byproduct because that's where people are living their purpose of being urban is to do the modern mission which is education and so really what happened is i would say that they they didn't replace countryside kibbutzim with urban kibbutzim they replaced agricultural industrial kibbutzim with educational kibbutzim now i know Oved started that process as a youth movement in israel but within a few years 
the other youth movements in Israel, like Hamachanot Olim and like Hashemar Hatzair, and youth movements around the world, socialist Zionist youth movements like Habonim Draw in the diaspora, started getting wind of these changes and started seeing what was happening in these urban kibbutzim and these educators kibbutzim, and then Hanoah Haved Velomed's creation of this new graduate movement on the front lines of the social problems of Israeli society. And one by one, each of these movements started going through very similar transformations against the backdrop of the crisis of the kibbutzim and the kibbutz movements these youth movements themselves had actually found themselves in crises because their whole raison d'etre was to pioneer these idealistic kibbutz communities so in the 1980s and the 1990s when these communities seemed less and less attractive in terms of being socially responsible and internally cooperative so these youth movements started seeing that their graduates didn't want to go and join kibbutzim anymore and that there wasn't really any encouragement internally or externally for building new kibbutzim anymore and so they literally reinvented the wheel to some extent they said okay so we either have served our purpose and we're anachronistic because we've spent the last you know bunch of decades building something which doesn't need to be built anymore and which is arguably changing beyond recognition and we're not sure if we want to be part of what they're changing into um so we could just close our doors and shut ourselves down and you know say okay we served a role and now that role's finished or we can reinvent ourselves in line with the new needs of israeli society and, and really that's that's the road that they went down after a few years in crisis each and every one pretty much of the socialist Zionist youth movements that used to build agricultural industrial kibbutzim for many decades started experimenting and building um um, new educational programs for the kids in the youth movement and as a result started producing new pioneering urban educational kibbutzim all over Israel. Today, if I want to skip to the bottom line, today you've got urban kibbutzim and educator kibbutzim of Hanoah Oved Velomed's graduate movement Draw Israel, and you've got Kutzot Bechira, the graduate movement of Hamachanot Olim and their educator kibbutzim like ours, like Kibbutz Mishol in Nazareth Elite, which is the biggest in the country and you've got Habonim Draw graduates from all over the world that have come and built these communities and joined actually with Joy Israel most of them at the end of the day and you've got Hashomer HaSeir in Israel that's that's uh, built their graduate movement of uh, urban educators Kibbutzim and you've got even new movements that, that 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 didn't used to be part of the old agricultural kibbutz building system like the Tarbut movement which uh, Tarbut means culture and their uh, socialist Zionist communities of artists who are also building fully cooperative very socially responsible urban kibbutz type communities all over the country now. Now, between all of those different groups, you know, the first generation of Tammuz and Migvan and those urban kibbutzim in the 1980s formed a network called the Circle of Groups, Maagala Kutzot, which is like a federative network of maybe, I don't know, a dozen small urban kibbutzim from, the, from that first generation model. So you've actually got now six movements across Israel, between them a couple of hundred maybe groups of socialist Zionists urban educational pioneering kibbutzim. Okay, so I asked you before about the classic kibbutz uh, and what they, what they created and what they did and what they built. And I'll ask you the same question about these new movement groups talked about already, what, 30 years? What they've achieved so far. Yeah, what does it look like? First of all, I'd say we're still at an early stage of development. I'd say that this thing is still growing and developing all the time. So it's very difficult to describe it in any way which isn't going to be very, very quickly out of date. I think at this point what we can say is that between them, these different movements of educated kibbutzim and urban kibbutzim have already at this point created a remarkable amount of um, social projects and educational projects, primarily 
in informal education and formal education, but also all sorts of NGOs and non-profit organizations that they've set up throughout Israeli society, dealing with pretty much anything and everything that you could call the issues and problems and challenges of Israeli society today. Israeli society has no end of, of challenges still ahead of it, whether whether you want to talk about religious coercion and religious monopoly, or you want to talk about the environment, or you want to talk about LGBTQ issues, or you want to talk about feminism and chauvinism, you want to talk about violence uh, in schools, or you want to talk about violence in the, in the streets, you want to talk about the political situation and the Palestinians, both inside Israeli society and in the occupied territories. Whichever direction you want to look in for problems and challenges of Israeli society, and, and, and above all of those, I would say, you know, the wealth gap, the poverty, the, the increasing privatization, not of the kibbutzim, but the increasing privatization of the welfare state in Israel, the increasing atomization and alienation in Israeli society, and the growing gap between the small um, numbers of incredibly wealthy people who are getting wealthier and wealthier all the time, and the large and growing numbers of uh, people in poverty in Israel that, you know, cuts across all the, all those different lines. We're facing huge, huge problems. And I would say that these urban kibbutzim and educators kibbutzim are responsible for being social entrepreneurs, I guess you would say in English, who are at the front lines taking responsibility for these things day by day by building grassroots projects in every town in Israel. And so he's asking me how much have they achieved so far? Well, I'd say that at this point, there's one of these communities in pretty much every place physically across the state of Israel, north, south, east, west, in the major towns and the minor towns, that they're, they're everywhere pretty much. Many of them are still quite small and many of them are still quite young. There's still a long, a long way to go. The mountains that they have to climb to really change the reality of Israeli society uh, are huge. And so we need to see them becoming more sustainable and bigger and making more projects that are more sustainable and bigger and creating more communities all the time which are more sustainable and bigger and that's what they're doing and many of many of these movements are very 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 focused on constantly growing the number of communities that they're managing to build and growing the sustainability and the size and the impact of these social educational projects that they're establishing all over Israeli society and throughout different issues in Israeli society. Can you give me a couple of examples of like institutions that have been created or that have been built or been taken on by these communities and these kibbutzim and these movements? I think that one of the really significant uh, developments over the years recently has been that where at the beginning these young groups of urban kibbutz building types primarily came from a background in informal education and so the first projects that they were establishing were you know youth movements and youth clubs and and after school activities for kids of one sort or another so a significant shift over the years has been their move from just working primarily in informal education to also being in formal education i think if you look at the 80s uh, model of the first urban kibbutzim. They were they also were um, right from the beginning involved in in education. At this point, to cut a long story short, we've, we're talking about schools, like regular schools all over Israel. We're talking about high schools, and we're talking about kindergartens, and we're talking about elementary schools. These people are taking their educational philosophies, their pedagogy, and their youth movement background in informal education and alternative education models, and uh, looking at the Israeli school system again from from the youngest age right the way through and saying you know it's it's outdated 
and it alienates lots of people and there's huge dropout rates in some of these socioeconomically and geographically peripheral neighborhoods um, that kids aren't getting a decent education whichever whichever definition of decent you want to use either in terms of their um, self-confidence and empowerment and, cre- and creativity and teamwork or in terms of the actual grades and the number of years that the kids are staying in school whichever way you want to measure it we're talking about educational crises and meltdowns in these in the sorts of neighborhoods where they're establishing these communities and so these communities are responsible for building schools uh, they're going into existing schools and renewing them they're creating totally new schools um, they're creating school networks that brings a great deal of hope because if you want to try and imagine how you change Israeli society as a whole and not just uh, have a local impact on a specific little community around you, then, you know, the idea of establishing a whole new type of school and a whole new movement or network of schools all over the country um, for kindergarten education and elementary school education and ultimately high school education and even beyond, you imagine the impact that that has on the kids, on the people, on, on, on their way that they think the way that they relate to each other the way they treat each other the way they treat other people maybe maybe education doesn't instinctively and automatically sound to people like a revolutionary thing to do when you're talking about empowering people and changing people's hearts and souls and minds towards building a good society together i think that education really is the key and so for me the idea of these urban kibbutz movements and educational kibbutz movements building more and more and more and more kibbutzim in every neighborhood in israel more and more schools run by more and more kibbutzim in every neighborhood in israel then it gives a great deal of hope for the future of israeli society to wrap up i'm going to try and bring us full circle i'm going to ask you about the relationship today between the old kibbutz and the new kibbutz that's a very hard question there's no one answer to it uh, there's a whole different mixed bag of connections and relationships between the old kibbutzim the agricultural traditional kibbutzim and the kibbutz movement or movements and these new urban educators kibbutzim and kibbutz movements there's some people i would say in the old kibbutzim and in the old kibbutz movements who are extremely extremely supportive and extremely extremely positive towards these new developments and to, and that they see us they see they see the the new urban and educational kibbutzim around israel as continuing their vision and their values and their work to create a better world and a better more just israeli society and the, the work of zionism in, in in general there are other people who see it as treachery and treason and heresy that these young fools like us have come along and changed their sacred institutions and have the chutzpah the cheek to challenge their wonderful achievements and even criticize some of their failings and they take it very very uh, badly and and they and they uh, very much resent what we say and what we do so there's a big mixture institutionally also there's been you know very different processes of of change whereby some of these youth movements and their graduates were really part of the kibbutz movement and and in many ways still are part organizationally and financially of the kibbutz movements and so there's a question of how these things are developing either in partnership or in friction and antagonism with each other there's 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 different models out there there's models that involve you know conflict and revolt and rebellion and threats and punishments on the one hand and there's also models out there of handing over the baton 
and supporting and encouraging and empowering these processes of change and handover. Each movement, actually, each of these new movements has its own story of where they are on that scale. I would like to hope and believe that as time goes on, there'll be more and more of that positive model that I would like to hope and believe that as time goes on, there'll be more and more people in the old kibbutzim and traditional kibbutzim and in the kibbutz movement as it's existed for the last hundred hundred years plus i would like to hope and believe that more and more of those people will understand that what we're doing is inspired by them uh, in in a great many ways and that they should see it as a compliment that we are trying to continue the good work that they did for so many decades and Hopefully there'll be less political conflict and antagonism between the old and the new as time goes on. But unfortunately today, it's not all uh, sweet and harmony. Unfortunately today, there's uh, quite a lot of friction going on. Are you optimistic? Do you see signs of what you want to happen on its way or or not? I think, you know, there's, there's a definitely place for optimism, you know, in, in those different models that I was talking about before and say so that, you know, what happened with our specific movement um, that Kibbutz Michal is part of, um, you know, Hamachanot Olim is and always was one of the youth movements of the Kibbutz movement, and we still are today. And at a certain point, there was a handover of the leadership of the movement to the new pioneers of the new educator Kibbutzim that we're building these days. In our in our movement's case, you know, a, a supportive partnership in this transition from building agricultural industrial kibbutzim for many many decades to building these urban and educational kibbutzim today and thankfully the the leadership of the kibbutz movement and the leadership of Hamachan Olim has has managed to to have a smooth friendly peaceful partnership handover process which i think is better for everyone i think that the kibbutz movement uh, the old traditional kibbutz movement has benefited from that i think our youth movement Mahanat Olim has benefited from that smooth handover and i think that our creation of these new urban educational kibbutzim and the social projects that we're establishing all over Israel also benefits from from doing it in a partnership handover type of way and so yes there's room for optimism i just i suggest to everyone involved in all of these different ongoing stories that are you know blossoming all over israel today i'd like to just say to all of them you know look look at that model look at look at what's happened in the hamachanot holim model and take inspiration and take hope that maybe maybe the conflicts and the politics and the antagonism and the resentment can you know and should be put aside in the case of all the movements that are going through this transition that we should see ourselves as one ongoing story of the kibbutz we're all part of this story of the kibbutz from the very beginning of the 20th century and through to today i i would like to invite and encourage everyone to see it as one ongoing story of positive jewish social change james it's a fascinating story and i guess it's a classic case of watch this space in terms of where it's going uh, but you've given us a good overview of how we've got to where we're at today and what exists today i want to thank you very very much for joining me thank you Love action. 